When you or someone you love becomes unwell, gets old or needs ongoing care, you hope that the care available is the best possible. But it's not always the way. I'm Catherine Henry from Catherine Henry Lawyers with our main office in regional New South Wales here in The Hunter. And in this episode of Law Matters, I want to take a look at our regional health system with well-respected ABC journalist, Jamel Wells. Jamel has a very personal reason to be concerned about rural, regional and remote health. A recent state parliamentary inquiry into rural, regional and remote health in New South Wales revealed just how broken the system is in many ways. In May last year, the report, which followed a two-year-long inquiry, was delivered. There were 22 findings and 44 recommendations, and there had been hearings conducted all around New South Wales. Overall, an acknowledgement that if you live in regional, rural or remote New South Wales, you are much less likely to be able to access quality health care than your city counterparts. The other thing to come out of the inquiry was stories, hundreds of individual stories of times the system had failed families, including many instances where unexpected deaths following poor medical treatment were not investigated as they should have been. ABC journalist Jamel Wells knows this only too well. She spoke out in the media about the care of her father who died after time in hospital in both Dubbo and Cobar. Some of you may have seen Jamel on the 60 Minutes television program with Liz Hayes and in the media that followed. Jamel Wells, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about an issue that's so important for you personally as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're in an interesting position to understand this inquiry that's taken place and reported recently from both a professional and a personal standpoint. Can we first start with the story of what happened to you and to your late father um, that has caused you to speak so publicly during the inquiry that was held? And could you just tell, tell us about how that all unfolded? Sure. My dad, uh, Alan Wells, was 85 and he was born in and bred in, in Cobar in Outback, New South Wales. He lived there his whole life. He built his own house there, had his own business there, volunteered for the local hospital and all the charities in the town. And at 85, he lived independently in his own home and he had a fall and broke his hip. So because there are often no doctors in Cobra Hospital and there's very limited care there, he was flown to the nearest base hospital, which was Dubbo Base. He had a surgery to repair his broken hip. Something went horribly wrong with the surgery. They did another surgery five days later and it all went downhill from there. He, uh, during that time, uh, after the second surgery, he, he was very unwell, he wasn't breathing properly, yet a nurse unit manager tried to discharge him. My brother and I fought the discharge because we could see how unwell he was. Within a couple of hours, he had a cardiac arrest and the hospital um, recommended not resuscitating him, even though he had a full resuscitation plan in place. He survived uh, the resuscitation and uh, was in intensive care for over a week. Uh, he had his full wits about him, full mental capacity, and we found out at that stage that the hospital had not given him uh, a standard anti-clotting medication that you are given after hip surgery. He 
went for um, a long weekend, three days without food and water after coming out of the ICU because the hospital said they didn't have anyone rostered on on a long weekend who could assess his ability to swallow. It, it's called a, a SIP test that, that medical staff give someone after they've had an intubation tube down their throat. In the ICU unit, um, I saw junior doctors uh, try to put a feeding tube in him repeatedly uh, in his nose. The junior doctor didn't know how to do it and was unsupervised. My father was screaming out in pain. He was begging for food and water for three days, which was was heart-wrenching to sit and hear your own parent beg for food and water when they've survived uh, and come out of the ICU. Uh, the ward at one stage ran out of morphine and Panadol, so he couldn't get any pain relief. And someone ticked uh, in his medical records without family consent that he was no longer suitable for uh, clinical reviews. So the doctors stopped coming to see him. And when we questioned it, a nurse said, well, someone's ticked no longer for review. So we had that changed. And my father started uh, recovering, Catherine. He was unwell, but he, he started to eat a little bit. And inexplicably, um, a nurse unit manager came in. It was late in an afternoon and discharged him um, back to Cobar Hospital. Now, this was by road ambulance on a summer's day. It was 40-odd degree heat, bumpy road. And we tried to fight the discharge, but we were worn down by then because we'd been sleeping at the hospital around the clock 24-7. We were so frightened of what might happen to him and so concerned about the care he was getting. We were too scared to leave him alone. There was a family member advocating for him 24-7. When he got back to Cobar Hospital, um, the nurses there were very caring, but there's no permanent doctor. And they were alarmed because he'd been given a drug called haloperidol before he was discharged from Dubbo to sort of make him dopey for the road trip. And the nurses said, he's at high risk of, of aspirating and we're trying to mobilise him, so he shouldn't be given this drug. And it was stopped immediately, and that was given once again without our consent. A uh, aged care assessor came to Coba Hospital to assess him for an aged care package uh, when he, um, you know, when he had when he would recover and, and ideally go home. And the assessor said. He's just too unwell to go anywhere. I just recommend that he rest here for a while. He's very frail. He's very weak. Within a couple of hours, the nurses from Cobar Hospital came in and said, no, you can't stay here. The assessor made a mistake. You have to go to the nursing home. And that was on Melbourne Cup Day. My father couldn't walk. He couldn't go to the bathroom on his own. He was in pain. He was crying and he held my hand and he said, love, they're just giving up on me. They don't want to look after me anymore. So this critically ill man had been shipped from Dubbo to Cobar, then he was turfed out to the local nursing home where he had no medical care and he died about a week later. And I say this to you with a lot of confidence now because that happened in November 2019 and hindsight lets you learn a lot and gather a lot of information. Um, but at the time, I was really trusting of the healthcare professionals at first who looked after my dad. I was trying to be respectful to all the doctors and nurses who cared for him. Um, looking back, I wished I'd just jumped up and down straight away and said, I want him flown to Sydney. 
I don't want this surgery in Dubbo and I wish I had of fought the discharge. But sleeping at the hospital 24-7, it's really exhausting and other family members felt the same way too. It, it took us a while to piece together what had happened. The alarming thing was after we got my father's medical records, we discovered that um, we were charged $600, by the way, for those medical records when he was a pensioner and the fee should have been around $30. On the records, we discovered that Dubbo Hospital staff had ticked a whole lot of boxes without family consent. One was no longer for clinical review, um, and they'd actually written on it, not for return to Dubbo base. That's what they wrote in his medical records. Whereas my dad had a, a legal right to be treated anywhere at any time and to seek treatment again at Dubbo base. We also found in the medical records um, they'd breached patient privacy. Mixed in with my dad's records were the records of a man from Narromine, another town not far from Coba. And there were key documents missing. There were surgery reports. There was a, a key blood checklist. Um, the, the state of his medical records was a, a complete shambles and staff had written things in there like um, dementia, that he had dementia. My father had never been diagnosed with dementia in his life. He passed all the hospital um, mental acuity tests 100%, still had his full driver's licence at the age of 85 and lived independently. Alarmingly also, the wrong doctor's name was put above my dad's bed. It was a doctor who we never met um, and we actually never met the doctors who did the surgeries. They were visiting medical officers. They never introduced themselves to the family. Um, my dad didn't know who they were, and there was confusion in the records over who had performed the surgery. That's the the gist of it. I could go into a lot more detail, but it was um, about five weeks of watching my dad suffer, watching him in a lot of pain and watching an old man uh, with his full mental capacity be treated as if he was just a silly old man who was a bed blocker. And staff did things like came into Dubbo Base Hospital and shouted at us, you know, talking above my dad's head, oh, has anyone phoned the nursing home about him yet? And my father heard that. Um, he begged before he was uh, discharged from Dubbo Base to go to Dubbo Private Hospital. He he said, I just want to rest and recover. I just want to go there and rest. For some reason, they wouldn't transfer him there. Despite that, they built his health fund. This is Dubbo Base, a public hospital, over $12,000. Yet he was treated as a public patient by junior doctors, there was no permanent doctor in charge of, of his post-surgical care and um, a lot of the uh, nursing staff at Dubbo Base, whilst they met well and they were very kind, they were uh, run off their feet and they were um, doing as directed by by managers. They, they were adhering to hospital policy. We felt there was a presumption against life for my dad from the start. He was treated because of his age as someone who just didn't matter and they couldn't wait to get rid of him. Oh, I'm just so incredibly sorry to hear that story. I've read the evidence that you've given and, and I've heard the story. 
that you've told to the media and but it's it's just so shocking from you know the earliest time from his discharge from Dubbo to the way in which he was sent to um, the aged care facility. You've told how you wished that you were more strident and, um, you know, spoken out more at the time, but you just felt that you were in this terrible situation just living from day to day. How do you and members of your family feel about what happened to your father three years down the track? It is still very painful, Catherine, and it it's the sort of thing. Um, I mean, I think about it every day. I think there's anyone who who sees those things happen to a loved one who is in a hospital. Um, I mean, I saw my father resuscitated. I saw him in pain. I saw him begging for things. And I think I will never forget those images will never go from my mind. But time lets you live with it and you uh, put it in a different place. You, You bury it a little bit deeper. The reason... I have not been able to perhaps move on as quickly as some people uh, would is because I have chosen to to speak out. Um, I'm in a very privileged position. I grew up in that little country town myself. I know how country people are sometimes very uh, stoic and brave and they put up with a whole lot of things in healthcare that their city counterparts just won't and they take it on the chin. I have a job in the media. I have a fairly high-profile job. I know how the media works. I know how government departments work. I am articulate. I can speak out about what happened. And because of that, I get emails, phone calls, text messages um, almost every day, still three years after my father's death, about people in similar circumstances. And a lot of country people just want to be heard. They just want to tell you, this is what happened to my mother, father, brother, sister, or they're very upset. And when I say to them, okay, you need to try a couple of things. You need to uh, get legal representation. You need to write to the Healthcare Complaints Commission, and you need to write to your local member. Most of them don't want to do that because they're frightened of rocking the boat, of upsetting someone, or they don't know how, they don't know what to write, they just don't know where to begin. So a lot of this um, just gets swept under the carpet and things don't change. A lot of them are very scared in a little town. I know for for Cobar, for example, a lot of them ring me and they say, oh no, I'm not going to lodge an official complaint because that visiting doctor um, might be seeing my son in a couple of weeks or the ambulance driver lives over the road or the the nurse's husband teaches my child. So the repercussions in a small town um, can be huge. And there's this um, fear of speaking up a- about what is wrong. There's also a fear amongst hospital staff. Now, I'm not only contacted regularly by grieving families, but Uh, whistleblower staff, and they came out of the woodwork um, after I gave evidence at the parliamentary inquiry. A lot of them made submissions anonymously to the parliamentary inquiry, and these are frontline nurses and doctors who choose their job because they want to help and save people, but they're working in this culture of fear, and they're 
told to do certain things by management and they have to abide by that. So if they speak up, they know that they'll get the sack so they can't go on the record and they contact me regularly and other journalists who've written about this inquiry and this situation of regional health and they send documents, they they say you need to look at this, 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 but they can't be named because that would be the end of their careers. So what I've seen over the past few years is just more and more cases like my dad's. Yes, the circumstances are uh, different, but it's um, elderly people in the regional health system uh, are not respected. It's as if they don't want to spend money on resourcing any anything for them, even air transport from one small hospital to another. And and they're not the only ones. The submissions to the inquiry were about the care given to people of all ages, from babies right through to, to elderly people like my dad. And all of it was very, very sad. Um, the few nurses and doctors who did give evidence at the inquiry backed what the grieving families and relatives have been saying. And they've described, for example, how they didn't have blood at hospital to give to a patient. One doctor said he didn't have a suture kit. Um, one nurse said she was directed to lock the front door to not let anybody in. And nurses described how they helped a lady give birth at a local airport because the air ambulance was diverted somewhere else. There was a, 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 a overload of patients that day. So decisions were made about where to send the air ambulance. And there's such a high staff turnover uh, in the bush. You have nurses and doctors who choose to go there because they love the country lifestyle, but they don't stay because it's just too hard and too stressful for them. I'm Catherine Henry from Catherine Henry Lawyers, talking to ABC journalist Jamil Wells about a recent inquiry into regional, rural and remote health and the recommendations that came from that. I have to say, sadly, that uh, some of the things that you're talking about and that you've told us about this morning are very familiar to me and the work that I do as a medical lawyer. I'm interested, and I too gave evidence at the um, parliamentary inquiry about um, some of the experiences that I've had acting for people around regional New South Wales, um, you know, the story about not having the hospital, not having sufficient blood products. Um, you know, I recently, well, just working on a case at the moment that involves the very same issue of a small regional hospital with a, um, a young 18-year-old boy who suffered a, a, a life-threatening um, injury and um, wasn't able to receive the, the blood products that he needed. But yes, um, lots and lots of issues in regional health. I'd just like to focus a little bit, Jamel, on where we go from here, because some of the stories that I hear and what happened to your dad that were so avoidable, you know, from the beginning to the end, um, to his end of life care, um, you know, this is not unfamiliar territory and the government has heard all of these stories over you know almost two decades the garling report that was conducted by the new south wales government back in 2008 heard all of this um, material east to justice garling as he now is he was then a uh, an sc traveled around 
the state hearing from people like yourself and from people who's um, from from individuals who'd experienced terribly traumatic incidents involving their family members just as the members of this parliamentary committee did and a report was issued there was all of the PR for the government you know aren't we great we've had this garling report but we're hearing exactly the same stories 13 years later. The government response to the inquiry has been disappointing, to say the least. Um, it seems to me that it's all the issues have just been kicked down the road. What are your views for the future? I think there's a, a huge appetite for change. Uh, one of the things um, I wrote in my submission to the parliamentary inquiry was that I couldn't get over how a health system would think it was okay to treat my 85-year-old father like that, but spend $30 million on a new Dubbo Hospital car park. And a couple of uh, months after Dad's death, I picked up a, a local newspaper in Dubbo and there was the then Health Minister, Brad Hazard, and health executives um, out, out in the car park with their hard hats and handing over a cheque and shaking hands. And I felt like I was being, you know, kicked in the stomach. It was horrible. I thought you couldn't spend money to get someone in to give my father food and water for three days, but you would spend $30 million on a hospital car park and promote that, you know, in the local media. The findings of the inquiry were damning and it it found that uh, staff work in a culture of fear, um, that outcomes are, are far worse for people in regional areas, health outcomes, and that the life expectancy of them is actually going backwards. And the government response, um, I, I think, was maybe an attempt to put out a few fires. Uh, they appointed a regional uh, health minister who has stated uh, to colleagues of mine that the inquiry um, got her in in that job, that she was appointed uh, because of the inquiry and and the publicity and attention surrounding it. And, and there were uh, about 800 submissions. They were just the people who were able to speak up. But I would imagine there would be probably six times that number of people who just would not know how to put a submission together. And, and some of them uh, had to seek help. They just didn't know what to say. Um, Unfortunately, when the inquiry uh, findings were, were handed down, there were uh, one of the recommendations was better uh, nurse to patient ratios. And uh, not everybody supported that on the committee that, that oversaw the inquiry. And that was very disappointing. Uh, I was hoping that that would have unanimous support. Getting the inquiry itself heard uh, by people in the bush was. Um, interesting in itself, Catherine, because they were holding these inquiries out in, um, you know, in Cobar, for example, they held the inquiry in the local RSL club and, and in other towns, it was in council buildings and meeting rooms. And initially, they weren't going to live stream that. They said, no, we don't have the capacity to do that. Yet they had the capacity to live stream council meetings at the time. So we had to lobby um, the government to actually live stream the inquiry to the people that the inquiry was about. And that suggests to me that they weren't that interested in having a lot of this on the record or, or exposed. They weren't that interested in people hearing about what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis and, and in the front line of the health the local health districts. Yes, that, that came up as an issue early on, that there was a bit of a push 
and uh, had to make a, um, a a big fuss about having the evidence that was given to the to the committee publicly available. Mm. As I recall, that's yeah. right. It it was uh, Media Watch did a story on it and was live streamed. After that, there was a ministerial review. Mr. Hazard ordered a ministerial review of of circumstances in Dubbo and Cobar. And they scheduled a meeting with me just a couple of days before they were meant to give their findings to the health minister. And I went along to the meeting, very trusting, um, feeling that I would be heard and very grateful for the opportunity. And I was reassured at the meeting that the allegations I was raising were far worse than they had anticipated and they would extend their reporting time because they wanted to deal with all of these things thoroughly. And so I came away from that meeting thinking that the right thing would be done. Then I got a a letter from the Western Area Health Service a couple of weeks later saying my feedback had missed the deadline for the ministerial review, so it couldn't be included, but they were willing to meet with me personally. That was very, very disappointing. And suggested to me a lack of transparency in in the way that they investigate. Luckily, the meeting was recorded uh, with the consent of everybody. Um, I think the journalist in me just has a habit of doing that. And I asked at the outset, did they mind if I recorded the meeting? They recorded it. And in hindsight, I'm very grateful that I did have that recording because I was able to go through it line for line and and reassure myself I wasn't mishearing things. They had assured me that the deadline would be extended. One of the problems is the local area health services uh, are not always transparent uh, with what's going on in their patch. And uh, it's as if they, they want to kick a lot of this under the table and hope that it will go away. And you're doing your best to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, I know from my work that I can see how you know um, there's there's a culture of secrecy and professional protection, and um, and I always see my role as a lawyer in this important area. There's nothing more important than our health at the end of the day uh, to publicly advocate about issues such as patient safety. Do you feel that when the the, the two year period uh, is up for a reporting um, or a report card on how things have progressed since this um, damning inquiry with its 44 recommendations and um, volumes of um, of material. Do you feel confident about the future? At this stage, I don't feel confident. Let's see what happens after the March election and, and what whichever government gets in commits moving forward. I don't think the appointment of a regional health minister has really done anything. I think building new hospitals is irrelevant. Buildings don't save lives. It's doctors and nurses who save lives. But it is the way the government works. You know, bricks Mm. and mortar, like Mm. we've had a, they do the same thing up here in the Hunter. They recently built a new big fancy hospital in Maitland and then the government crows about how, you know, isn't it great that we're doing, we're making this commitment to public health, but it's about the services provided within those beautiful new buildings. It, it's an area where we see it's, it's easy to hold an inquiry on one level. You you know convene four or five people from the upper house and hold an inquiry. We've had 20 inquiries into aged care uh, since the, the Act was introduced in 1997. It's very easy to have a Royal Commission, to appoint Royal Commissioners and to 
recruit staff, it's much harder to do something. It's good politics, but poor policy. Mm. Uh, I'm a medical and health lawyer and I've been in this space for um, some decades. Do you have views about what we as a society should be doing to bring you know, the, all of these cases of poor care to light. There are doctors who and medical practitioners who have advocated for many years for a no-fault system of compensation. Um, there are those who feel that litigation against doctors and hospitals play a role in improving quality. Uh, I'm one of those. There are those who believe that legal action is, is confined to particular factual scenarios and therefore has a limited capacity to address broader issues of community safety. Do you have any views about the two sides of the debate? I think that the more you can bring these problems with regional health um, into the spotlight, any avenue is good. My own experience has been the coroner's office is not interested. I have put in a, a complaint to the Healthcare Complaints Commission and I've been phoned by the head of the Healthcare Complaints Commission. I'm waiting on that report to come back. I think sometimes litigation uh, forces the hand of some of these health services. If 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 there is enough litigation um, going through the doors, it it and if it can be reported on, I think that does call them to account a little. Unfortunately, with a lot of these settlements, a gag order comes with it. So people are given a, an amount of money for compensation for their loved one's pain and suffering or their pain and suffering, and it comes with a non-disclosure rule. Personally, I have not taken any legal action against the health service um, that treated my father the way that it did because it was suggested to me that because of what I saw, I could lodge, and, and you would be dealing with this in your work, a, a stress claim. And that would come with some sort of gag order. And I don't want to do that. I would be prepared to just keep speaking out for as long as I need to about the treatment that my dad received. Um, my colleague, um, Liz Hayes, who uh, gave evidence to the inquiry as well about the the death of her dad uh, in Taree. At Manning Base, yeah. Yeah, feels very strongly about that too. We're not suing anyone for anything, um, but the more inquiries and and the more eyes we can get on the health services that have performed so badly, the better. Well, I, um, what you say resonates with me. Can I just actually just refer to the gag order that you refer to? Mm. Um, the, the, there is in any case like this, uh, like any negligence case, will have a term of settlement that you're not able to uh, as a person who's brought the action, talk about the actual monetary mm. amount that you have received as a result of the case, but you're certainly able to talk about what happened. And I always encourage people to do that because for all the reasons that you've um, so eloquently articulated, it's really important. And you're in a good position as a journalist and understanding the media and the way it works to tell your story and um, in a, a, a very accessible way. But it is really important to to tell stories about what happens um, so that people are held, the those responsible are held to account. Um, and you can certainly just, you know, tell the facts. I believe that um, I'm not here to drum up medical litigation, but I do. I wouldn't have stayed in this 
a very important area of law had I not believed that the role of litigation in having a significant impact on public policy is is a strong one. There may be some cultural and um, demographic aspects to this in the sense that people may not want to be fearful of talking out, but um, at the end of the day, you would hope that those you go to uh, to support you in bringing forward your case will support you and and take the flack. So I just want to thank you, Jamel, for all you've done and, and for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me, Catherine, and thanks for all your advocacy and all the people you've helped as well. That was ABC journalist Jamel Wells talking on this episode of Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers. If you need any help with health and medical law matters, including negligence, you can contact me and members of my team. This podcast was produced by Liz Clarkson of Pod and Pen Productions and Sarah Shands of Point Five Productions. Sound engineering by Sawtooth Studios. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review. You can subscribe to Law Matters with Catherine Henry Lawyers wherever you get your podcasts.